Isn't it great just having all this vulnerability and openness from the front? It's amazing. Now, if you would like to reach in front of you and pull out the black book, the Bible, we have a juicy chapter to read together. And hopefully, I'm mature enough not to giggle. All right, it is Leviticus chapter 18, which is page 117. All right, it's pretty serious stuff too. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonour your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonour your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonour you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister, because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonour your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonour your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbour's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Uh, good morning, everyone. Bet you're glad you're not me. <laughs> uh, yes. It's a tricky passage, isn't it? And uh, today might actually not be the talk that you think it's going to be. Um, to begin with, I want to show a clip from show TV show called The West Wing, probably the best TV show ever made, I think. If you haven't seen it, all you need to know in the clip is that the man talking is the president, Jed Bartlett, uh, the heroic main character who's meant to be a Christian. 
And definitely the woman seated is a, uh, a Christian. She's a popular Christian radio host. And they're at a function in the White House for radio hosts. The dialogue's kind of snappy, so try to stay with it. But uh, let's have a watch, hey? You know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, of the awesome impact. I'm sorry, uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can, how it can, forgive me, Dr. Jacobs, are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits. I did ask Mike whether Barack Obama was just as intense. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful show, actually, West Wing, and President Bartlett is a wonderful president. The question, of course, is, is he right? Do Christians basically just cherry-pick verses from the Old Testament in places like Leviticus 18 that we've just read that suit them? Do we disregard the ones that don't suit us? Because that's a claim that's often made about Christians, certainly that's the claim that Hollywood and the West Wing is making. 
Um, should we as Christians just junk the whole Old Testament, which is what many Christians do, and many churches encourage that by never even opening the book of Leviticus, thinking that it doesn't apply in any way to us these days? Or is the seated Dr. Jacobs onto something, not specifically about the issues in the clip, but that the Old Testament has some kind of ongoing application to the lives of 21st century Christians? Well, that's only going to fly if we can make sense of a chapter like Leviticus 18, if we can come up with a coherent approach to the Old Testament law that neither just flicks at all or that just sort of cherry-picks the bits that we like and ignores the bits we don't like. So that is my job for, day, for today. I'm going to ask you to love God with your heart and your mind as we try to work this out. The book of Leviticus all along, uh, and we're halfway through our, our study of it, asks this question, how can sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? The part of the answer that we're looking at today is by pursuing lives of purity in all kinds of ways. Now today is not going to be a talk on biblical sexuality. I'm not going to try and boil down a seven-week series on sex-marriage relationships into one talk. I'm not going to bludgeon us blow by blow, verse by verse, through Leviticus 18. I'm not, for example, going to say anything about homosexuality today. We will cover that subject in an upcoming series that's focusing on social issues and the like. We will get to sexual purity at the end, but before we do any of that, we actually need to say some very important things. And the first thing to say is that in the Bible, God's grace always precedes God's requirement for human obedience. God's grace, that is his kindness, his goodness showered upon undeserving people like us, it comes first. That's exactly what the reading that M shared with us at the top was explaining. And human obedience to his commands is the response that follows. And we absolutely have to get that order right, especially when we're looking at ethical questions like sexual purity. God's grace first, followed by human obedience. It is all the way through Scripture. For example, page one, God creates the world in all its glory and splendor. As we've looked at it in our small groups this term, he makes the first humans, however he does that. He places them in the Garden of Eden. That's all grace. It's all his favor and goodness showered upon undeserving people. He gives them every food-bearing tree for food that is more grace with just a solitary requirement. Don't eat from the single tree of temptation. Okay, that's God's grace preceding human obedience. That's human obedience following God's grace. It's the same with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 that we've been looking at in small groups as well. Go, Abraham, to the land I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you a fancy land. I'm going to make you, old man, into a great nation. In fact, all the world is going to be blessed through you. So God moves first with great grace in all these promises. And Abraham responds in obedience and he leaves. That's the same with us. God showers us with kindness. He saves us from sin, the death and the devil. Not because we were deserving in any way, but because he moved first. Sending his son to live the perfect life, to die the sacrificial death, and then to rise triumphantly from the grave. Only after saving us. Does he require the human response of obedience? 
Remember these words, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Seminal verses, right? Grace comes first. We cannot earn God's salvation. It is a gift, not by works, but obedience follows. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But we must get that order right. In a moment, I'm going to call people who regard themselves as Christians to absolutely pursue lives of sexual purity, to reserve sexual expression to the relationship of marriage. We are going to talk about specifics later on. But what we learn from Scripture, it does need to shape how we live in this world so that we do reflect God's holiness, even if God's standards in our world run completely contra to our culture of sexual permissiveness, where just about anything goes, as long as there's consent, and my freedom as an individual to do what I want is paramount. Now, I say that now just to give, really as a heads up, right, to give us a chance to prepare ourselves. I don't say that so that you think I belong to a previous epoch of time where I still think the world is flat. Nor do I say that because it's the first thing I want you to hear. If you're uh, not a Christian here, or if you are, the first thing I want you to hear is that God moves first. He pursues us. Uh, he pursues relationship with us. He extends the hand of reconciliation and peace towards us, though we have all affronted His holiness in many ways. Climatically, He does this in the life and the death and the resurrection of His majestic Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He loves us. Because He loves us. Not because of our good works or our sexual purity or anything else. I'm just trying to say that God's grace always comes first. It was true in creation. It was true with Abraham. It is likewise true with us. And it was true for the Israelites too, who were the first readers of Leviticus 18 that, were read, that was read to us earlier. If you read through that chapter in isolation, it looks like there's a whole bunch of commands the people had to do to become God's people. But His grace always comes first. And as Emily has already shared with us, He rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, rescuing them from slavery and rescuing them into relationship with Him to be His people, though they were undeserving, just as we are. Grace comes first. And obedience is the human response to God's first move. Secondly, uh, today we must understand that God is interested in both our hearts and our actions. And uh, we ought not to trade off one against the other. Uh, you remember the Pharisees and the, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, they seemed to be very concerned with kind of the outward action. And they seemed to have lost any heartfelt motivation that was meant to lie the, uh, underlie that outward action. They kind of cared about appearances. They obeyed the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, not so much. Now in our day, friends, I think we are the other way around, or at least that's our tendency. We've got this vague idea that as long as we sort of love God, it doesn't really matter what we do with our actions. And, and I hear... 
not uncommonly from people in our church this basic idea God's only really interested in our hearts that's just not right he is interested in both our outward actions and our inward motivations and we cannot pit one against the other you know in the book of Leviticus uh, chapter 17 marks a real shift from material that was mainly ceremonial you know sacrifices priests offerings food laws day of atonement to material that's mainly ethical which is concerned with how we live morally at ground level now ask yourself this question why are there 16 chapters of ceremonial symbolic stuff first before we get on to the practical the ethical the moral stuff it's a lot of material don't you reckon it's because God wants to move the hearts of his people first rather than just telling them what to do you know so in this system of offerings he wanted them to see that an acceptable life before him was one that was lived wholeheartedly all in for him just as this sacrificed beast was all in he wanted them to yearn in the deep wellsprings of their soul for a priest who could adequately represent them in God's holy presence even with the food laws he's trying to impress upon their hearts that there is actually a thing called right and wrong and that God determines what's right and wrong and that it was easy to become unclean and devastating to be cast out of his presence and that he wants them to know with great assurance that their sin and guilt had been taken away because his grace always comes first through that day of atonement as a zeal as we saw last week when the sin and the guilt and the goat leave the building only after he'd moved their hearts for 16 chapters of highly symbolic material does he tell them what to do what not to do at ground level friends God is interested in both our hearts and our actions in every aspect of our life and it is a mistake to pit one against the other so God's grace always comes before human obedience and he wants to move our hearts rather than just tell us what to do and not to do I had a, a very average experience at high school average in the true sense of the word not particularly good not particularly bad and when I finished my last high school exam in a bold act of rebellion against the strict dress code I am such a loser I walked out defiantly in bare feet <laughs> ridiculous I'm embarrassed about this next bit actually I decided 17 and a stupid I decided I'd like to have a picture of me pretending to wee on the school sign it's not that bad <laughs> stupid so I stood dumb with my back to the camera over the school sign positioned accordingly to give that effect and then I turned around to see why my friend hadn't taken the picture and when I turned around it was immediately clear why he hadn't because walking straight into our path was the deputy principal okay the enforcer with his perfect Lego man hair not a hair out of place and with his expressionless Lego man face what would he do Wooly walked straight past me with only a dry smirk increasing his changeless face momentarily now why was that 
I think it's because we both knew that the school no longer had any authority over me. I was finished there. I had done my last exam. The school's authority, his authority, no longer applied. I could kind of metaphorically do whatever I wanted without judgment. And that's how many of us think about our Old Testaments, I think. Uh, the book of Leviticus. And we're sort of right in a way. We're also wrong in a way. We're, we're right in that the Old Testament no longer applies to us as the kind of binding terms of a covenant arrangement. In other words, God deals with us today under a new arrangement, that of Jesus Christ, signed in his blood, as it were, that was shed on the cross. That the terms of the covenant or the arrangement that was made with Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament, it was always kind of meant to point forward to this new arrangement that we are a part of. This new covenant with Jesus, the salvation he has won for us by dying for us on the cross. So it doesn't apply to us anymore in that way. But friends, it is still scripture and our Bibles tell us that all scripture is God-breathed. It all comes from within God himself. And furthermore, it's all useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. So the question is not... Does it still apply? Like it's scripture, man. Of course it applies. The question is, how does it apply to us today? How could it be useful to us today? And at this point, I'm really going to ask you to stay with me. To answer that question, it's been very common to divide the Old Testament into three categories. Old Testament law. You have ceremonial, you have civic, you have moral law. Now, let me say, the Old Testament doesn't make this distinction of itself. It doesn't divide itself into these categories. Any Old Testament scholar would call me a scoundrel for suggesting we do this and would insist that you cannot divide it in these ways, that the, the people of Israel always saw the Old Testament law as a single unified whole, etc., etc., etc. But 4,000 years later, it's tricky. Don't you feel that? And so this will be helpful. We need the help we can get. And so... There's been Catholic philosophers like Thomas Aquinas, important Protestant documents like the Westminster Confession have used this threefold division, ceremonial, civic, and moral law, usefully. So ceremonial, uh, that covers the stuff that we've looked at already in Leviticus. Sacrifices and offerings, food laws, priests, Day of Atonement. And you'll have noticed that we no longer perform the sacrifices that are outlined in Leviticus. We no longer have priests dressed up in all their finery, although Bruce does follow fashion. So watch that space. We, uh, we don't have unusual food laws anymore, so I presume the Washington Redskins feel free to play football. There's no longer a Day of Atonement, and goats across the world are breathing more easily, aren't they? Why don't we do that stuff? Why don't we follow that ceremonial law? Well, the answer is because it was always intended to point forward to Jesus. We no longer sacrifice animals on, on an altar because Jesus was our once-for-all sacrifice on the cross where he died, in our place, for our sins. We no longer have priests like Israel did because Jesus is our forever priest who never dies and who has never sinned. So he perfectly represents us to God. We no longer follow food laws like we saw two weeks ago because Jesus declared all foods to be clean. We no longer have a day of atonement because there was a final singular definitive day of atonement when they took Jesus away. Azazel, 
outside the city and crucified him. The ceremonial law, it pointed forward to him. It was fulfilled in him. So it no longer applies to us in that way. But let me tell you, if we don't understand it, our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be limited. It's going to be infantile. It's going to be shallow and stunted. And that's the reason why we've studied this book carefully, this term. So that's the ceremonial law. Next up, we've got the civil law. And if you were to read through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would see there are a whole bunch of laws there that apply to the people of Israel as a civic society. Rules that governed what you'd do if you've wronged your neighbour, how you might approach warfare, how you might settle legal disputes and so on. And can I say that compared to the surrounding culture of that day, these rules displayed considerable mercy, justice, protection and a proportionate response in cases of wrongdoing where most of the surrounding cultures were built on bloodlust and excessive revenge. Now, do those rules which previously applied to the nation of Israel back then apply to us today? Well, we can't insist that they apply to the nation of Australia today in the same way as they applied to the nation back then. Israel back then was the people of God. Australia today is made up of all kinds of peoples. So they don't legally apply to Australia. We can't insist on that. Will Australia be better off if we follow the principles of mercy, justice, protection, a proportionate response in cases of wrongdoing, rather than just bloodlust and revenge or letting everything go? Well, I think it will, don't you? make a pretty fair case that Australia is a great country, which it is, uh, at least partly because it was founded on some of these principles. And so that leaves us with the ethical or the moral law. And the question is, does that still apply to us today in any way? Let's have a look at the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Don't you find that interesting? I mean, Jesus doesn't say the, the law or the Old Testament, the, the prophets, it's just code for the Old Testament. It's just a waste of paper now. It's just a museum to the past. It's irrelevant. He doesn't say it no longer applies. He says that he has come to fulfill it rather than abolish it. He says that the commands continue in some way. It's so interesting. And so Jesus fulfills the ceremonial aspects of the law. That's why we don't do the sacrifices anymore. But he's basically saying that there's a continuity with the ethical commands, which is why we're not at all surprised to find them repeated in our New Testaments. Now that is going to make sense, isn't it? If God remains holy, I mean, his character doesn't change. His moral standards don't change. His requirement of his people to be holy is going to remain as well. And in fact, if Jesus does anything to the Old Testament commands like that, he intensifies them, doesn't he? In the very same chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, he says these words, 
You've heard it say you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then in Ephesians 5, a little later, it says, There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, because these are improper for God's holy people. See, at the very point where Jesus could have said, Ah, that old stuff, it's just old stuff. He actually does the opposite. He says, not only does that letter continue, but the Spirit applies because God has always been interested in both our hearts and our actions. Now, as we finish up uh, for today, with all this background information kind of filed away, what do we do with Leviticus 18? How does it apply to us today? How do we come up with a 21st century sexual purity ethic? Is President Bartlett right or is Jesus right? Well, the command to honour and revere marriage and to not commit adultery and the further ways in Leviticus 18 in which it was and is possible to break the ethical requirements of God remain intact. Well, they continue to apply because God remains holy and because holiness and obedience is the required response of his showering of grace upon us. Sexual purity within marriage, that is wonderful, giving, passionate, binding, enjoyable sex between a man and a woman who are united in marriage, that remains the fitting context for human sexual expression, as is outlined in the Old Testament. It really isn't a free-for-all, as our culture would have us say. And it's certainly true that Christians should not have sex with people with whom we're not married. Or in any of the ways that are mentioned in Leviticus 18. Our New Testaments don't relax that at all. If anything, our New Testaments intensify it. Saying what's going on in your heart counts as well. Looking lustfully at another person is akin to adultery. Which I take to mean that pornography just cannot be a feature of our modern lives that we just get used to. Dear friends, there's, there's not a trajectory in which God has all of a sudden got all relaxed about things. He wants us to follow him with our hearts and with our actions. The commands that he gives us are for our good. Whenever we break them, it brings pain to ourselves or to others or estrangement from God and often it brings both. And I would like to spare you from that. And look, I realize it all sounds very intense. And it's not the first word I would want anyone to hear about God. I further realize that this marks us out as quite unusual in our surrounding culture. Just as I guess it marked the Israelites out as different from the land of Egypt, from where they were rescued and as it would mark them out from the land of Canaan, as it says in verse 3, the land to which they're heading. So I think we're not going to be surprised if our friends or our family or our workmates or even our own kind of consciences sometimes might think that we're bizarre or quaint or prudish or outdated for such views or such a lifestyle. At the end of the day, we are playing for an audience of one, our holy God, who has first showered us with great grace, 
And so maybe it's not prudish, but prudent. Maybe it's not outdated, it's timeless. Maybe it's not anti-sex, it's pro-faithfulness. Certainly it is but our meek human attempt to mirror God's beautiful holiness in the power of his great spirit that he has given to us. And I think we've just got to roll with the punches of what our culture might say of us. Christians, can I be very specific with you before I close? At a practical level, what this means is that if you're sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, you need to stop doing that until that someone becomes your spouse, if that's even a possibility. If you're having an affair, if you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, then you need to stop. Or otherwise, make it right with God by getting married and publicly affirming your lifelong commitment to that person. Perhaps more broadly, let me encourage us, challenge us not to start walking down a road in our dealings with other people that will lead to adultery or impurity. I wonder when I mention the concept of adultery if there is a name or a face of a person with whom you could see yourself committing adultery. If that name or face immediately pops into your mind, I would suggest you are already walking down that road, at the very least in your mind. And I do think you should take drastic steps to spare yourself and others from a great deal of pain. Also realise that uh, relationships and situations can be complex, can't they? And uh, I hope you can sense just in my tone that I really we want to be helpful uh, and gentle as we all try to follow Jesus in this area of our life and in every area of our life and to do what is right in the eyes of God. So if you feel like help would help or clarification would make things clearer, then we'd love to have a conversation with you and perhaps help you get it right in the eyes of God. And you might like to get in touch with us through the contact details on the Connect card or the, the front of the service sheet there. Have all of us made mistakes in this life, this area of this life? I would say yes. Pretty sure we have. Have some of us suffered things unwillingly in this area done to us by others? Yes. Does Jesus forgive our sins, remove our guilt? cleanse us from our shame yes for all who trust in christ absolutely and should we continue to strive for purity in all areas of life of course yes of course if god is holy that remains unchanged then his requirements of us his people particularly in this area of life remain constant our obedience of course is but the human response to the great grace God has showered upon us in saving us through his wonderful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I am very confident that even President Bartlett would have a hard time disagreeing with that. Let me finish our time together by praying. Heavenly Father God, we do want to thank you that grace always comes first. You always take the first step pursuing relationship with us. Thank you that you are interested in both our hearts and our actions and you want to move our hearts to obey you on account of your great grace. Lord, we thank you for the many ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. 
we want to be people who continue to pursue purity in every aspect of our life and we continue to need your great grace to be able to do that. Remind us that you have cleansed us from sin, shame and guilt. Then move our hearts to want to follow you in this area of our life with all that we have. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to finish our uh, final song. Uh, sorry, our time together with a final song, I Surrender All. It's a great song. It's fitting. If you have a Connect card that you would like to put in the, the bags as they come around,